Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is the second episode of the Can series of episodes. And as usual, we'll be going through some films that we've been watching. I've already done a little preview, so now we actually get to roll up our sleeves and talk about a few movies in depth. For this episode, I'm very happy to be joined with my interlocutor from last year at Cannes for a memorable episode about the French Dispatch, among other movies, uh, and that is Mark Ash. Hello. Hello, Mark. Hello all to all of you out there in Radioland, and <laughs> hello, Nick, and thank you for having me here on the Terrace of Journalists, looking out over the Mediterranean, which, as last year, I have not been in. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's something I don't always get to myself. I think I need a certain measure of uh, austerity, so the idea of actually enjoying myself on a beach is a little too much. I think even more than last year, uh, this is my second festival, and last year I was here in July, and for a much under, for a much less heavily attended and booked and sort of had less of the full infrastructure of parties and promotions and Hollywood Mm. and visiting press in general. And the thing that I've, my main takeaway from this year so far is just how much more of a festival there is than I realized. And I guess that this is really the Mm. first time in three years that we've had a can that like people talk about when we talk about can. So that's (laughs) been really, um, it's my second first can and I'm having, um, and as ever, I am enormously grateful and privileged to be here because even when the movies have been, we'll get to that. (laughs) We'll get to that. But just before we begin, I I always like to make sure readers know or listeners know where they can read what you'll be writing about the festival. So uh, where will you be publishing? I am covering, my my badge says Inside Hook, uh, the wonderful website insidehook.com, where I'm doing French dispatches is what we call my (laughs) periodic narrative and critical columns and I'm also reviewing for Little White Lies and hopefully uh, booking a few interviews for various outlets that I'll just tell you about later. Well, that yeah, everyone should should read what Mark writes. And Mark, just so you know, I'm actually going to be filing some dispatches for the Elle magazine to you. Um. It's it's I'm glad that they're bringing it back. I really (laughs) think that people are desperate for a listings-based print bi-weekly yes, <laughs> to read on the subway. Yeah, I encourage you to, to, to look it up. It's a storied chapter in uh, <laughs> New York uh, film journalism. Um, although that's actually came up recently. I think you were talking about the repertory capsules. My um, my greatest claim to fame, yes. uh, New York's definitive repertory film coverage, <laughs> uh, which I was True. so pleased to edit and read, and just paying a mere pittance to have a lot of young writers who needed clips to cash in and <laughs> and and leave the nest and go on and fly away and i like charlotte at the end of charlotte's web just sat at the l magazine and watched them go on to write for triple digit fees yeah it's it was it was the sort of thing where it made the world a safe place for you to say uh can i write 200 words on marguerite duras cameo <laughs> just something like that so that was yeah a lovely time but bringing it up back to the present, the golden era of the present, we have been watching, I guess, first the opener for Director's Fortnite. I guess we could begin there since I think we both agreed that yeah, something special. Very much my highlight of the festival so far is Scarlet by Pietro Marcello. So most Pietro Marcello known far and wide across this great land uh, <laughs> for, as the director of, of breakout hit of the <laughs> pandemic, Martin Eden. And like so, like Mar- so, Scarlet like Martin Eden begins sort of with stock footage and continues on in 
fictional scenes to have mm. a really really beautiful textures that evoke the early color film, which is era appropriate and sort of magical and transporting. Uh, it's different from Martin Eden in that, well, Martin Eden, whereas Martin Eden was set in a sort of mishmash of decade of 20th century decades, mm. um, Scarlet is set very definitively in a specific time and place, which is in France between the war, between the world wars. Mm. It begins with a wonderful actor previously unknown to me, uh, Raphael Thierry, who has oh, this yeah. sort of great like English bulldog cauliflower face yeah. and and head. His, the back like the back of his head is somehow like even more bulbous and wrinkled and expressive than the front of his head. Like he he's acting from all sides he's, at all yeah, times. Yeah, he's 360 beautiful. Some of the best hand, <laughs> some of the most some of the most beautiful hands you've ever yes. seen in a movie. I don't know anything about him. I assume he's a professional. I assume that like he's known and I'm ignorant. But <laughs> he does seem like somebody who just marched out of the past as he does at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um uh, he returns home from World War One, trudging through the fields, and meets uh, for the first time his infant daughter. They are living on this farmhouse. He is sort of a wood craftsman, and he is initially sort of introduced as the protagonist, but she also emerges to sort of take over the movie at a certain point when she's old enough, as the years go by. And this is the other thing that's different from Martin Eden, I think, in that it's not a great man version of history. It's just that this sort of... It's just... Mm the baton just gets passed along and Mm -hmm. it's sort of like the girl ages very fluidly uh, into a young woman. I don't know that it has a plot. It has a sequence of events and it's so open-ended. So he makes, for a while, he makes beautiful hand-carved wooden toys and (laughs) and they go into the city to sell them. And so that's something that happens in the movie for a while. Um, And then she grows up um, and is this sort of like beautiful peasant princess who (laughs) has a wonderful like sort of... um, crystalline singing voice and has, has offered the chance to go study uh, in, in, in the city but wants to stay home with Papa and mm-hmm. eventually uh, an old woman who lives in the woods tells her that someday the, the scarlet sails will come and, and take her away it reminded me a lot of several films that I have not seen I don't know if you have um, but the, <laughs> the, the Fanny trilogy, the Pagnol uh, yeah. which is uh-huh. um, Fanny Cesar and Marius mm-hmm. set in like Marseille is it? Set, Sounds right. Set along this very ocean that we are looking out <laughs> at um, in the, in France in the 30s and just about the relationship between a father and a daughter and yeah. like the, the choice to leave home or not to leave home. But at the same time, it's just in so many different genres or registers yeah. sort of all the time. Like it's, yeah. um, it's a fairy story. It's a rural proletariat drama, but it all sort of com- coheres somehow. I was thinking about um, Sally Potter's Orlando just in terms of the way like... Mm, mm-hmm the flow of consciousness through just time in its beautiful variegation and and I also thought that um, when Louis Garrel shows up as an aviator with like <laughs> a go- goggles and a leather helmet and a white silk scarf and he's flying a biplane and just sort of lands and crashes into this girl's life it made me think of 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 Billy Zane in Orlando and his career defining role as Marmaduke <laughs> and just yeah. every every setup in the movie seems to introduce a different potential mm-hmm. version of what it could be in a dress. I think it's like sort of crazy to say, but it occurred to me as I was like looking at my notes and typing them up that I don't think that Scarlet is necessarily the definitive version of Scarlet, mm. if that makes any sense. Yeah. That this is one version of the potentials within this material that he's exploring in a lot of different ways. And I just, I just thought it was really wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the fact that he manages to make it hold together with all of these elements and all of these shifts. And there's honestly like, I don't know if joy is too strong to it, but there's just a real 
pleasure to how he moves in and out of these modes and moments. You know, I mean, yeah, when she sings, it really feels like a moment uh, that you're in a musical for a moment for that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the world is like shining. But it doesn't have that separateness of like a musical number. It's just like drawing on that kind of energy for a moment. Mm. It's, you know, he, he, he always has such an appreciation for every single image and that, you know, the grain of it, the, the composition of it. Uh, I mean, I don't think I'm going to f- ever forget the like last or second to last image, which is just this a, a kind of storybook image that could be a cliche, except if you do it like incredibly, it's nice. <laughs> you know, he sort of reinvents. I don't want to give it away, cause, but it's just this beautiful shot. And Would it be giving too much away to say that it looks more like Fragonard than something that like <laughs> than Joanna Hogg was she wasn't going for that right she wasn't going for that sort of visual like that sort of that era of art history but I think in that image he sort of is and it's really beautiful yeah yeah and and there's such a a suppleness to how he moves through these different uh different images and yet the the fact that this is a movie that can uh, withstand Louis Garrel playing an aviator who (laughs) falls into her life I mean I think clearly at some level he must have asked him to kind of keep a lid on it in so many words <laughs> which is like counter to like all the possibilities of it uh, so yeah because it's easily with him that it could run away with itself and become like a, a self-parody but now he's just this kind of extra person there so I guess I'm trying to say remarkably underplayed considering <laughs> but yeah you mentioned like fairy tale even the way that he cuts to close-ups or mm-hmm. insert shots is just it's very sort of dream logic like yeah. something is there that wasn't in the that wasn't there before yeah there's just it's just a sort of magical intervention even if it's just like cutting to like the face of a a close-up and those Mm close-ups are always framed very sort of there's like an equal it seems like there's usually like an equal amount of space between the chin and the bottom of Mm. the frame is the forehead and the top of the frame and between like the left ear and the left and the right ear and it just feels like a very sort of it's its own thing it's Mm -hmm. not like they don't exist within like necessarily like what we would consider seamless spatial continuity with each mm-hmm. other they are each the only thing that matters in that moment yeah. but then something else matters and somehow you retain all of it yeah i know I, i'm so glad you mentioned that because that reminds me of another device he has which is the montage sequences with music to just kind of move through you know time <laughs> and again it's another instance of you know is there anything more familiar than a montage that's kind of like taking you from here to there in the young person's life <laughs> but these are all they're just yeah they're just beautifully beautifully paced and and put together and again just kind of like liberating i don't know momentum and energy to them yeah there's this one moment where um there's another girl on the farm who's sort of the daughter of the blacksmith mm-hmm. and the, and the friend of the daughter of the woodcarver and there's just a mo- there's just a scene where um, the image is suddenly sepia, mm. and they go mm-hmm. to a Beau Arts department store and try on cloche hats, <laughs> and like, it's just this boundless historical curiosity about how this era, like, what sort of art and technology and mm-hmm. commerce was available to people, how that made them think about their lives and themselves, mm-hmm. and how big the world was, and how it was represented in the media of that time, and how then we remember it, and it's filtered through that, mm-hmm. and. And he has like dozens of just totally standalone sequences that sort of evoke an entire digressive curiosity mm-hmm. about this one particular moment in time and how it relates or doesn't even ha- have to necessarily to yeah. to every to the next one. Yeah, yeah, and all that 
and a great grumpy tavern hangout. <laughs> Which I... Oh, a, a, a beautiful, um, a beautiful <laughs> French country tavern. Also a beautiful old wooden farmhouse, which yeah. also becomes a fairy princess's tower um, mm. in certain shots through a window. And with, a, I'm, I, I'm not, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to continue to give away like <laughs> to give away too many moments. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just every, it's it's all these things simultaneously. Yeah, it is. And yeah, and then obviously you have like a couple other also very recognizable French uh, actresses in it. I mean, Noni Lovovsky. Yeah, Noni Lovovsky and Well, Lolita Chama. Um, Lolita Chama yeah. is um Isabelle Huppert's daughter Lolita Chama's in it. Uh, she's like the tavern keeper. Right? Yes, yeah, she's yeah. the tavern keeper. Yes, she's the, yeah, the tavern keeper, the tavern keeper's wife or Yes. Yeah. So yeah, we we could we could go on, but I I, I don't know. You kind of need something in, in, in the beginning to mm-hmm. restore your faith, and this definitely yeah, did there, that. It was a lot of movie. <laughs> I think it was the most movie I've seen so far, and yeah. I think we're going to talk now about <laughs> the mov- that, the second most movie that I've seen so far. This might be even more movie, I think, which <laughs> in, in some ways, it, and it's even beyond movie uh, <laughs> in a sense. And uh, yeah, I'm talking about Tchaikovsky's wife, which... Uh, saw on the second day here and this is by uh kirill serebrenikov who is newsworthy just because of his persecution and prosecution (laughs) and the fact that he's here and the fact that he's here exactly he's makes headlines just by being here uh because yeah he's been put through various court dramas and house arrest and detainment and not being allowed to travel and in this latest i don't know reprieve that he got that seems to have happened sort of randomly where he like applied and didn't even think that it would work, but they gave him permission. So he left the country. I believe he's now settled or planning to settle in, in, in Berlin. Yeah. So yeah. he's now, a, he's now an ex, he's now um, an expat Eastern European filmmaker in Western <laughs> Europe, which we have not had one of those in a while. <laughs> right. I mean, I guess Sergei Lesnitsa also lives in not Russia. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, Sarah Brennikov, requires a certain amount of introduction also just because he's a you know really prominent figure is like a stage director directing both operas and plays and being the artistic director of like theater and arts complexes <laughs> in, in Moscow so just like a big figure and also has made a number of films somehow which especially in the case of this one have the equivalent ambition of like <laughs> of like reaching for the rafters opera production so Tchaikovsky's wife, oh yeah, on top of everything, this is a movie that the very premise of it is, <laughs> you know, offensive to uh, certain, you know, conservative Russian sensibilities. Uh, so it's a story of a, a woman who is a great admirer of Tchaikovsky and <laughs> makes him an offer he can't refuse, <laughs> basically, <laughs> to marry her and she'll be completely devoted and... You know, he tries to explain, like, I don't know if this is really going to work for me. <laughs> um, but she, she sort of goes ahead. They they have an initial arrangement. But the marriage uh, is sort of doomed to fail, effectively, uh, because Tchaikovsky is interested in men, not in women, as eventually uh, his wife is explicitly told. But there were hints, though. They were No, there were definitely hints. It is fair to say that there were hints. There were hints, <laughs> and also the movie makes an effort to kind of flesh out his social circles, imagining, you know, the people he hangs out with and the kind of artistic salon that he kind of frequents. And he keeps running into people in the street who are <laughs> extremely skeptical to see his wife <laughs> with him. And I mean, I kind of appreciated just the historical aspect of that, of trying to imagine, you know, what Tchaikovsky's circles would be like. And 
so that's part of it. And then there's also the aspect of just him having a kind of genius complex to a certain extent where he just he just can't take it when she is breathing <laughs> basically near him on top of everything else. Uh, so it's a movie that is kind of weaving together different, you know, motivations for why they're miserable. <laughs> and she is, I have to say, like I took her as a kind of a, a martyr figure that I wasn't always entirely on board with. You know, I just felt that she was, this actress is kind of, put in the situation of just kind of banging her head against this this scenario and they, they kind of keep it ambivalent or rather ambiguous you know whether she's also kind of losing touch with reality at times although for me that ended up being I know this is not what he means but end up feeling like a reactionary gesture because when you start questioning what <laughs> you know <laughs> what whether she is really perceiving things as the way she does it sort of seems to undercut them Although I guess historically she she did have I don't know some some sort of challenges and yeah and then there are all these extravagant flourishes in the movie there are, there's a lot of nudity and uh, in, 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 in these almost kind of fantasy like ways she has an affair with her lawyer because she's totally neglected by Tchaikovsky and he's her kind of life raft although he also seems to have his own agenda anyway I, I won't there's one scene there I just yeah anyway because he gets consumption but that doesn't Anyway, so I don't even know. Yeah, where else? Well, it's save me. It's uh, <laughs> I had I was mixed on Leto, his film about the uh, Russian post-punk band Kino. Mm-hmm. Though that also though that like this one was sort of about not just sort of the struggles of being um, the economic struggles and struggles for recognition and stability in Russia um, about a hundred years apart in the mm-hmm. 19, early 1980s versus the end of the 19th century, but that one too also. Um, had this figure of like this tormented genius and his suffering wife. So interesting. That appears to be a theme. Um, which, given that Sarah Brennikoff is um, an old school like European opera house, art house, and theater house visionary, like visionary impresario type, makes. I wonder if there's something there. But we don't. But it, there is something. Well, there is something there in the films, and maybe that's all we need to know. And also, last year he was here with Petrov's flu, which was yes. an even more sort of confrontational in its sort of hairy symbolism in its sudden gestures of violence not just like as depicted but as but violence against sort of like narrative expectation Mm -hmm. and under our understanding of like what is happening in the diegesis even within the the length of a single unbroken take and it was sort of as I think I don't know what Petrov's flu is really about I think it's maybe about the the Russian character in all caps as embedded as embodied and embedded in this sort of extremely woolly and virtuosic and a little bit willful a little bit sick a little bit extravagant well it also takes place in three different time periods so there's no shortage of like (laughs) ambition to to the scope there it's like how do i evoke the russian character well i'll go to three different (laughs) we're we're gonna do all of them but i'm really glad you mentioned the uh, just to jump in the the long takes because that's a huge feature of Mm -hmm. this film i think maybe even longer ones or more longer ones than in petrov's Mm -hmm. flu flu and which i guess it's it, they're strange because at times you can forget they're happening and at other times they're impressive you know and i bet there were a couple moments where it was sort of thought of like hosaucien because he'll do this thing where time will pass mm-hmm. in the course of the camera moving around the room the, yeah like he'll there's one that i mentioned in my review of where um the uh, she sees him off at a train station mm-hmm. and the camera follows her from the platform to the station cafe where she waits for his return mm-hmm. uh, where she waits for several weeks 
in diegetic time and several seconds in mm -hmm. screen time. I'm not sure I used diegetic properly there just now. Um, <laughs> but the point is, is that then she gets up and she goes back to the platform. And of yes. course, the punchline is that he is he's still in the other city and has sent an intermediary to tell her that mm -hmm. her husband will be back at some point at some time. There is so time passes, um, different sort of registers of reality and narrative possibility. I think also. And I like that. I like that he's swinging for the fences. This was the first competition film of the festival, and it should be, and both in terms of its sort of extra textual resonances and its ambition, it's it's really sort of it's a big like you are here in at the home at the world home of art cinema kind of movie. But I also I found the sort of stylistic extravagance largely backloaded. Hmm. And the first half is sort of more in a sort of slow, stately period drama, a little bit life of an artist kind of gener more generic biopic about this woman being sort of deluded and gaslit. Tchaikovsky's wife, who per the end, uh, per the end title credits and presumably also Wikipedia, died in an insane asylum. And so there is an which, you know, she was a woman in the 19th century, so that, right. could, mean, that could mean anything. Right. That could mean she was disagreeing with a, <laughs> you know, male elite that was trying to shut her down at exactly. every turn, which she was. <laughs> well, yeah. And so, it, but, but in the context of this film, it's clear that she's not fully in touch with reality. And as she gets more and more obsessed and deluded, the style of the film gets more and more free. So I have mm -hmm. conflicting feelings about liking the second half better because mm. I think it's... I think that that's an over. I think that that is a little bit. Uh, I think that's a little bit too schematic and mm -hmm. a little beneath and a little and a little beneath him. I don't think that he felt the need to have a character-based justification for his style in Petrov's right, Flu. Right, I see what you mean. But I think it's it's ultimately worth it for the experience of the film and these incredibly choreographed takes that move that travel immense distances through yeah both physically and through time and space and through different sort of cycle and through different sort of psychological states. Yeah. And I think that it's also a fairly legible film about as I sort of say in my review like about how Russia doesn't love you back. <laughs> right. This is a film about um a woman who was devo devoted to Tchaikovsky and sort of spent her life hoping that that love would be requited. So, yes. It's a very it's uh, that that sort of kernel of metaphor expands in yeah. Ways that are sometimes satisfying, sometimes unsatisfying, and some, but and sometimes quite extravagant. And mm -hmm. so, but I, th but I was able by the end to sort of feel like I knew why he had made this movie. Mm -hmm. No, I think, yeah, I, I think that's that's dead on. I mean, she's definitely presented as a pretty naive figure uh, in in the beginning, and almost a little kind of certainly condescended to by people around her, you know, despite being a pianist, a musician herself, it's easy to forget that as she's kind of buffeted about and, you know, marginalized and everything. But yeah, I, I like that. I like that reading because <laughs> yeah, it does not, does not work out. And yeah, it's just a kind of bad to worse film. And, and this actress, I think her previous claim to fame was two or three years ago here about the two sisters she was new to me um uh, i actually quite liked her performance i thought she had a certain holy fool type of um implacability yeah which implacability is a quality we'll return to i think uh, later in the podcast but uh yeah i think maybe that's that's the extent of tchaikovsky's wife that we can encapsulate but we can stay in a sort of <laughs> rush in a sort of russia of the mind yes if you want we can talk about another film that screened here yesterday yes i and i think the 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 segue that we we deviously came up with is basically tchaikovsky's wife ends more you know with a postscript about russian revolution when at which point 
spoiler, Tchaikovsky's wife dies. I feel terrible not actually using her first name, but I usually... Antonina. Antonina. So at, at which time Antonina uh, Tchaikovsky... Well, to be fair, she does say she in does the film. Call, she does true. say in the film, yes. I am Tchaikovsky's wife. Yes, she does, and she, she very much is... She owns saying, that. She owns that. <laughs> I am Mrs. Tchaikovsky. That, that's, her, that's her identity that she... Her, for her, her profile, her stature. But she dies, and amidst the confusion of the Russian Revolution or... I don't know, probably also just continued neglect. She's not buried right away. So that's kind of the, the bookend to the film. And if we can leap from the, <laughs> the, the, the beginnings of the Soviet Republic or, or, or some sort of Bolshevik <laughs> construct, right past, skipping right past the Cold War, we get to our next movie. We get to Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> Yesterday, the red carpet of the Grand Theater Lumiere was transformed into the da- into the highway to the danger zone. <laughs> I think it's I think it's safe to say that. And I said earlier that that this can already feels um, so much more like the can that I had sort of read about and grown up reading and sort of expecting mm-hmm. the sort of like world cinema history is happening here kind of moment. I mean, like I think the last last year, like they had a, they had a big they had they had sort of a big Hollywood film very early in the festival with some megawatt star power, but it was Stillwater. And I remember like Matt Damon just sort of wandering around like on this terrace where we're sitting now, um, being sort of shepherded about by his handlers. But this was Tom Cruise out on the can red carpet uh, signing. I saw at least one person who had pushed to the front of the line where he was doing autographs had a um, had a Blu-ray case of Edward Zwick's The Last Samurai. Yes. Uh, for for Tom to sign, <laughs> people were thronging him, monopolizing him. There was um, just a really sort of the magic of Hollywood and indeed of cinema, all capped off by military by, might, by military might, <laughs> by a flyover from. Apparently, I was told by friend of the podcast Julian Allen via Twitter <laughs> yes. that this is a French, the same sort of French jets that do the um, the tri- tricolor vapor trail, mm-hmm. red, white, and blue at the end of at the end of the like over the Arc de Triomphe at the end of the Tour de France, and in sort of a great. Um, a great moment in the history of Franco-American relationships, much like uh, the much like the gift of the Eiffel. We returned the gift of the Eiffel Tower <laughs> by having, I guess, these planes come fly over over the Lumiere dur- at, during the during the red carpet, not once but twice with fumes, red, red <laughs> white, and blue fumes. fumes. The group chat was popping off. We were like, <laughs> we were as children again. Um, I am ashamed to say that I loved it. I was. Giddy is a schoolboy, which is maybe like a good, which is I think the right headspace to be in for, for a film that I was babysat by. Yes, and I, I will just add that even though I was below ground uh, during this flyover, uh, we heard it in the audience, <laughs> and and I think the presenter who was doing the introduction was so confused by it that it, I think he thought it was like thunder and, and was kind of grumbling, oh, here comes the bad weather. Um, but <laughs> ne- yeah, I put two and two together and realized it was in fact fighter jets. Um, they, so, so just to know, you know, you'll still hear it in the bunker. <laughs> but yes, yes, uh, it turned us all into uh, petite uh, écoliers, uh, <laughs> little schoolboys Top Gun did. Although I guess, full disclosure, we did watch it uh, on American soil. Uh, we did. As as Americans, it is our it is our birthright to see Top Gun first before the French, before anybody else. Yes. We at a proper multiplex at a at a big at a big multiplex. Um, th- and yeah, with popcorn and everything. Popcorn and, in the works. It was. Um, what is your history with Top Gun? <laughs> this is a 
this is like a Rorschach blot uh, <laughs> test. You know, it was there. Uh, you know, it's just like it's like a it's a highway when you're growing up. I didn't even mean that. That's the, <laughs> that's the scariest part. That's how deep uh, it goes. That's how deep the rot is. I mean, I have to say, like <laughs> being the person I am, it was definitely a movie that just I was totally alienated by. Like like even like as a kid, I just I liked the the air stunts, but like every other thing about every person in that movie was not my cup of tea <laughs> like they weren't even people i would want to have as my heroes i'd rather have i don't know what like a, a wisecracking archaeologist for example or uh, someone else or so a yeah cuddly space alien or a cuddly space alien are you referring to explorers i, I, I guess there are a lot of them <laughs> yeah that leaps to mind because that in fact was a childhood favorite of mine <laughs> so yeah it's and then i have to say like it was it just felt like a movie i certainly did, did not feel the need to watch it again because it's it's just like a it's one of those like, like omnipresent texts that you don't if you've seen any other blockbuster from that point on to a certain extent at least say pre superheroes not to immediately generalize i mm-hmm. felt like that was the that was the 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 spark of like pomp and circumstance you know through bad boys or something bad boys would not exist without top gun mm-hmm. i was surprised actually how many of my friends and colleagues were catching up with it for the first time i guess because it is so ubiquitous you feel like you don't need to see it and to a certain extent you i guess you don't um but it is also it is this sort of gleaming hazy smoky hard body militaristic campy made with the full enthusiastic cooperation of the united states navy yeah and with tom cruise shooting down three migs over the over in international waters and somehow not starting world war three as we know because they subsequently made a sequel in which he was alive and not dead of nuclear radiation (laughs) (laughs) yes and i mean i don't know do we it seems just a waste of time to recap the plot since it's probably being fed intravenously this is still america we we don't need to we we don't have to we don't have to we don't have to do exposition for top gun explain yeah i was joking that (laughs) talking about top gun we're just going to sit here and chant usa uh (laughs) together in unison and drown out any other uh commentary on the subject real talk about top gun maverick for for a second it's a impervious film to a certain extent like i watched it i can't say i enjoyed a lot of it but i can't even say like i was mad at it for a lot of time i mean it's still like yeah completely ridiculous that you don't even know who they're fighting that you can have an entire movie like that without somehow with like actual geographical detail but somehow no names so this is a fun one for um this is a great film for people who like movies because they have cool cars in them and they like cars <laughs> or like how people who are really into watches are really excited by the bond movie so i can we can say that the airplanes that the airplanes that the bad guys fly at the end are the current Russian fifth generation fighters. And we can further say, because I read this on the internet, <laughs> that the terrain that they fly through in the climactic mission is actually a sort of, is actually a training course in, I believe, sort of northern Nevada, um, okay. sort of, in, in, in this general vicinity of like the Sierras. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, um, and, and ultimately I, I, I bring this up because this is like, in some ways, like a film for the hidden sort of normie gearhead inside all of us to sort of <laughs> turn off like the, part of us that knows and in, knows intellectually and indeed emotionally that that this is ridiculous propaganda for america hollywood the armed forces the armed forces collaboration with hollywood everything about that but also just like there are some cool planes okay doing some cool stuff 
so here's the problem for me, which is that I didn't actually love the air play <laughs> or the, like the air, the stunts or, or whatever you want to call them. Uh, I actually was expecting that they would be an improvement on the original, mm-hmm. having had, you know, whatever it is, 35 years. I guess this is a pre-pandemic production. And I was disappointed. And I also just felt the way they were filmed was actually not always that interesting. I almost felt like they were saving a lot of the thrills of the air battle sequences because most of the movie is them training Mm -hmm. for the the climax, um, which itself is, yeah, the kind of forgotten thing about these kind of movies is that it's, they're, they're, they're just training. So there's no, it's all just play. They're just playing with these big toys. But I like, there wasn't much use of like actual point of view, which I thought was a waste. Like there could have been more Mm -hmm. of that. That was just notable to me. I, I get think of something like hot shots or something and like, you know, reaction shots of someone in a cockpit are just mm-hmm. laughable to me at a certain point. And I love how they still will pull up next to each other with the plane in order to talk to each other <laughs> as if it was physically necessary to fly 10 feet away from someone <laughs> in order to talk with them over a radio. Anyway, I think pet I, peeve. there are some things about it that are not um, that are not accurate. We'll, no, I know. We'll just no. But well, I mean, actually, and, and then this is like one of the things. Like, for instance, like a film that I, a, a book that I really, um, a book that I really like about about aerial combat is uh, James Salter's *The Hunters*. Hmm. And one of the things yes. that that book makes really clear is that it takes a really long time to turn a to turn a jet fighter around, and oh. that like so much of dogfighting is just like trying to time the approach right, and then being you know several miles away again and coming uh, back and that's something that like neither ni- that and that's something that neither top gun really honors and t- coming in at different altitudes and timing the approach right all of the, all of these things where that's really what dogfighting is is like circling um, but that that's almost my point because given the fact that I don't even expect it to be realistic I wouldn't I wouldn't want it to be it's a, it's a it's a fantasy I want it to be fun you know in in that regard I don't understand why things sort of felt restrained to me um, in in the beginning you know why why wait you know like what and again just from a filmmaking perspective or just from like a spectacle perspective mm-hmm. I just wish they would do more with with basic like aerial stuff I think that this film being made so much later than the original one has has access to maybe has access to much more advanced and better VFX technology, which is not necessarily to the film's benefit. But again, they don't even do what they could with with that. I just don't. I don't even know. I, yeah. Anyway, so that so for me, like that aspect of it, except for the, the the climax, which is I have to say, like exactly as ridiculous and and fun as I would like it to be, mm-hmm. um, because you know they're building up the whole movie, so they have to deliver something. I don't know. I guess we're missing the. The heart of the movie. Well, the heart of the, the, the heart uh, the heart of Tom Cruise um, is the heart of Tom Cruise. I mean, the, this is yeah. I mean, the titanium. I mean, we yeah. I think that like both as like a. Ta- I mean, and, and 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 I will say too that I eagerly await the American cinematographer article about the making of hmm. Top Gun Maverick. The American cinematographer article about the ma- about how they shot the first one is a classic of the a classic of the form. Lots yep. of stuff about like hiding like 35 millimeter cameras in multiple places within the cockpit with um and they can only fit about two feet about two minutes of film in the canister um Mm -hmm. without like disrupting the plane and all that so it's very cool stuff very interesting to know how they did all of this but yeah it's also this is also a film about about how tom cruise will save not just the Cannes film festival (laughs) not just hollywood and the soul of the soul of a the soul of a nation i feel like the music is swelling he's sort of well i mean he is told that many times in this movie, which was co-written by his Mission Impossible, as I called him, my, and 
to quote myself, I'm sorry again. Um, his Mission Impossible Amanuasis, Christopher McQuarrie, is uh, one of the credited screenwriters on this. And I assume wrote all the places where Tom Cruise is complimented, <laughs> which happens fr- frequently it, it, throughout the movie. Does. So I see why the Screenwriters yeah. Guild gave him a credit. Yeah. He's, he's the best of us. He truly is. Um, and this is a film about how the Navy needs a 57-year-old fighter pilot to, um, who is the only one who can train up these young kids and sort of pass the baton and redeem the sins of the father and make the present and future as glorious as the past. Yeah. I don't know how to follow that. <laughs> I feel like uh, anything I say after that might be an- deemed anti-patriotic, uh, treasonous. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess it was also remarkable. This is a movie that for me, I mean, I knew this is what it had to be, but I was actually surprised that it kind of starts with Tom Cruise being a teacher. He's teaching these, you know, top flight pilots for this mission and that's his job. So he can't upstage them. But of of course, that's going to be nonsense. But I was kind of amazed that he returns to the center, you know, that he he is still the, the hero. This is not uh, Sylvester Stallone in Creed. This yes. Is. <laughs> yeah. That, no, that's a really interesting, um, yeah, comparison. I mean, what happens, how, and, you know, an action icon and character is, is dealt with. Uh, this is how this particular one is How we is deal with. with aging. Yeah. Yes. Which, you know, I mean, this is, I want to just tread carefully but i have to say like an interesting sequence was uh val kilmer yes yeah without giving too much away I, there is an acknowledgement of because val kilmer is in the film and it's on like three thousand screens you can say whatever you want okay well that's true well <laughs> it, he's it hasn't opened yet oh well we haven't given anything away i don't know well, I, I mean the embargo's up so people yeah. have read my, people have read my review um <laughs> well val kilmer is, is um a really because like he and Cruz were both these sort of golden boys in at the time that this film was made. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the contrast between them when Kilmer shows up and when the film acknowledges that yeah. Val Kilmer has had a lot of health issues over the last few he- years, he's sort of this, I don't know, like this sort of sad figure who is almost, a, who is a casualty of time. Yeah, but it, it's, it's weird because it's interesting. I was watching it and I guess immediately felt protective or hyper alert to how they would use him mm-hmm. in that way. And actually, obviously to a certain extent, like he is, I just, I don't think they actually managed to make him like an object of pity which within this like macho context he would be mm-hmm. i think he manages to actually somehow salvage that character in that in that screenplay in that moment um i mean they have him communicate uh, mostly by typing mm-hmm. and actually until then texting his, ca- his character is in maverick's phone as yeah. ice <laughs> ice man right, is yeah. in maverick's phone as, as ice, ice yeah. i i almost like i almost like stood up and walked around the theater <laughs> i was so like yeah, I was so happy about that. But I, I guess, I mean, this might sound absurd, but I actually kind of like that he was who he he is, you know, in in, in that particular scene, and and he, he's able to, you know, he whispers a few words at a certain point in the scene. It, am I crazy for saying that that might be like one of the most actual honest parts of the movie, most honest parts of the movie? Well, yeah, because we don't, you don't get to see. You don't get to see people in, in, in on screen who who have otherwise been entirely retired from the s- yeah. spotlight of. I mean, I th- I mean, you can you can compare it to um, like to Liza recently at the Oscars and say like, mm. yeah, and look what you said about pity. Like, there's no shame in aging. I think that um, in a fi- in a film that in some ways is very much a denial of aging, um, right? And in the con- and in the larger context of American gerontocracy and and <laughs> uh, in, in our political class in general, I think um, that's dead on. Yeah, that, that like it is nice to see. Let's be clear that Val Kilmer in Top Gun Maverick is not like 
Catherine Coulson in the Log Lady as the Log Lady in Twin Peaks to return. But for but for the kind of movie that this is, it, I think you're absolutely spot on that it's just like this is what we you don't you don't see this. Yeah, it was it was remarkable. And you know, for what it was, it's 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 exactly the kind of scene he has to do in the story and he does it, you know. So yeah, I don't know. That was actually one of the <laughs> unexpectedly, you know, interesting points of the movie and I don't know. I was just thinking I'm not going to pile on about the style of of the film which but as a kind of counterexample, like, you know, also totally ridiculous, but Ambulance, the, um, oh, yes, Michael Bay movie, that's a movie that with, <laughs> it's just all over the place, but I actually felt like he was trying some little new things and, and going nuts. I don't want to talk about Ambulance, but just in the sense of what you could do, like, he can, is doing whatever he wants. This is like a movie, like Top Gun Maverick is a movie that's kind of being wheeled out on a float, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's someone, I forget who, maybe it was, you know, described when you're, you're directing a franchise. They're like, "Here, the keys to the Lamborghini. Like, <laughs> do not mess this up, you know." Mm-hmm. And then you just drive it at five miles per hour. So that's a bit more of what Maverick is like. But yeah, I know. I mean, I wouldn't totally slam it because again, I you know, I I had my little boy Glee uh, at at the ending. So. Mm. Oh yes, I, uh, I. It also like as as somebody who came of age as a film critic reading. Um, Reading Jay Hoberman yes. and the village, the village voice <laughs> style of like ideological close readings of of Reagan era blockbusters. This movie was for me, I, much like the young the young Top Gun pilots that Tom Cruise trained. Like me writing my review, I definitely felt like a young Top Gun pilot, <laughs> and Jay Hoberman was my maverick, and I was just trying to live up to that sort of standard of and to that standard so that was so it was so this was such a thrilling film for me uh, that i definitely cannot follow so i think that's that's the cue for um that's that's the thrilling conclusion to our critical discussion <laughs> of top gun maverick which yeah you know is uh, every year uh, at can they show you know one or more examples of s- major studio film art um and, and that that is one I don't know if we have time maybe for just one more film. We have time. Let's uh, do it. I, I kind of wanted to talk about it just because we've really freshly seen it. And, and I think it can be interesting just to use what I like the podcast for sometimes too, which is just very rough draft things where I'm not passing judgment in the movie, but I just want to kind of think aloud a little bit. And that movie is Harka, which is which is in a, a certain regard. And it's directed by Lotfi Natan. And he, I knew because I saw and wrote about his movie 12 o'clock boys which is a kind of hybrid documentary about baltimore motorbike enthusiasts who take over the roads and just kind of create this rolling pageant uh, that is completely intoxicating and exuberant and honestly yeah it's just like a very vertovian experience as well that film so you know hearing about this one i was kind of curious what what it would be like how would you describe what, yeah, how would you describe Harka? Well, it's set in Tunisia, and it's about a guy who sells gasoline out of a jerry can on the side of the road, and his dreams maybe of migrating, of getting on a boat and going, coming across the Mediterranean too. And maybe that's something that's interesting about the film is that we are here on, again, on the Mediterranean. I'm looking at it right now, and it's always <laughs> useful to remember that, that. And I think that for the that for people that can, it's also use, useful to remember that that's where... And I think that was also one of the reasons why people really responded to Matty Diop's Atlantics a few years ago, because it also sort of reminded us about yes. the sort of specter of, of migration across the Mediterranean to to Europe and the sort of yeah. fate that awaits a lot of the people. But he, So he, 
he wants to leave, but he's saving up money, but he has family obligations and continues to run into obstacles with the Tunisian bureaucracy. There's uh, his late father had some debts that he can't repay. He's constantly being hit up for for protection money for bribes by cops. He's um, just hassled at every turn. He's trying to do sort of black market gas sales like on the li- on the border with Libya and there's also and there's all this t- sort of whole backdrop of Tunisia in the 10 years after the Arab Spring which began with mm-hmm. a guy which began when a a guy who I assume like I who I thought of frequently during this film because he was became so reached such a pitch of frustration with corruption and bureaucracy in the Tunisian and the Tunisian government that he self-immolated and kicked off the Arab Spring yeah. and that is alluded to in sort of expository radio and TV broadcasts uh, periodically throughout the film that nothing has really changed since then. That's the sort of sort of thread of it. And the film sort of follows this guy's increasing rage, which Mm -hmm. I thought was interestingly portrayed because it's not always entirely sympathetic. He's somewhat he's cruel to his family. He's apoplectic at times. He sort of he sort of veers between apoplectic and just totally like sullen shut down. Mm. Yes. So yeah. No, no. So that's I mean which is also maybe sort of, I don't know that I found the film successful just because I think that I felt pretty clear about where it was going from very early on in it, that there is just a lot of, there's a lot of imagery that, that points the way forward. And it seems like, it seems like the sort of, the possibilities for the film sort of mm-hmm. narrow, scene right, by, right. almost scene by scene. You can, f- you can feel the trajectory getting more and more you can pinpoint the trajectory more and more. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's true. But what I will say, and yeah, I don't think it's, it's an entirely successful film. But the rage he displays that the actor shows is so like anti-charismatic, <laughs> and I think we're so used to, you know, what, what we were just talking about, Top Gun. But we're so used to how violence and, uh, you know, aggression, the way they're filmed carry you along uh you know in this case he's just i was marveling at his rage and also the fact that the movie is just sort of watching him just combust and i sorry i choose that word mm-hmm. but it's it's not powering the movie it's just he's just sort of spiraling and there was a certain bravery to that that i was impressed by that he is just rages at everyone it's not like he has snappy comebacks it's just really mm. go screw yourself to to everyone completely self-destructive mm-hmm. but not in an at all like romanticized way and there was something i was impressed about to s- hold that line stick to that line of how desperate he is and how it is not going to be appealing to watch mm-hmm. and that he is not a actor who is going to try to win us over whatsoever mm-hmm. uh, in that regard yeah that's definitely the thing that i took just the way that it frames the way people who are ground up by the gears of state which is a frequent topic in every national cinema i mean you can point to you could compare it to Asghar farhadi films you can compare it to italian neorealist films which are lofty comparisons and i think that there are some missteps that maybe make the film feel sort of more overdetermined than than those sure you, yeah another comparison that um is going to make it sound like i liked this movie more than i did is like the people who are arguing with bureaucrats in Wiseman movies. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. I mean, one that, I mean, in many of these situations, the people who seem crazy are, in some ways, they're the most sane because they're reacting with the genuine, you know, frustration to the situation mm-hmm. that is completely... Much like Tchaikovsky's wife. <laughs> 
that completely should not be the way it is. And yeah, I mean, again, I want to I want to be careful in terms of comparisons, but it did remind me of people who are, are suffering that you see uh, in New York streets a lot mm-hmm. that are put in these positions because of a completely actively callous and destructive series of policies. And in this case, it's as you described, you know, there's a historical context for it. But yeah, it's a familiar kind of impotence and, and, and rage. And also, I just want to mention, because it's another aspect of the movie that must be important to, to the filmmaker, and that's a voiceover, which is in the voice of one of the children and is sort of musing, dreamy, reflective quality. That plus a pretty saccharine score mm-hmm. that kicks in at sometimes the oddest moments. And I completely cannot figure out how those things... Like, if this was a Lars von Trier movie, you know, like, those would be, like, the Brechtian, like, elements or something. Which takes it away from being, I think, what we can... The, the examples that I gave, which are much more strictly in a naturalistic register or strictly mm-hmm. in a procedural narrative, this is much more orchestrated. Yeah. And I think that... I'm not, and so I, so I don't know... So I think that the film is sort of less of a pure object than, like, the than the version we have sort of described as sort of potentially implicit within there yeah like the good version yeah. of this movie that we're describing yeah i don't know if there's much more i can i can say it's it's a movie i'd have to kind of chew over more like we really saw it you know in the last hour and a half or so <laughs> um but i'm curious to read how people react to it but yeah that's harka director Latvinatan. and i think I at least am sort of spent <laughs> from that sequence of films. Uh, that is, I think. Th- I think that's <laughs> uh, that's a lot of movies. For, it is uh, for the f- for the first day of the festival where I'm seeing more than two movies. Um, yeah. So I think I think that's a lot. Um, yeah. One thing that I did see before the festival, just before you you cut my mic, <laughs> I saw in New York. I was able to see Valeria Bruni Tedeschi's competition film uh, Forever Young, and I had some embargo, so I will respect that but I also know that you recorded already a podcast with Amy Taubin who has seen it and I'll just say that I'm really looking forward to hearing that conversation and for people to get to see the film and to digest it via that medium in particular because I think Amy is in some ways like the perfect viewer for that film yeah it's nice to have a little trailer here thanks for that's a nice nice thing to mention um so yeah people can look forward to that and in terms of this lineup of uh, films, I think we'll bring this episode to a close. But uh, Mark, pleasure as always. I'm Th- sure we will be crossing paths and chatting again soon. Thank you very much for having me. Thank and you. thank you all for listening. Thank you. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. This episode was co-produced by John Gaudio. Please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music. Thank you for listening.